Chapter 8 of Diary of a Pilgrimage by Jerome K. Jerome. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Michael Brook. The rest of Sunday, the 25th. We seek breakfast. I air my German. The art of gesture. The intelligence of the premier danseurs. Performance of English pantomime in the Pyrenees. Sad result therefrom. The German Conversation Book. Its narrow-minded view of human wants and aspirations. Sunday in Munich. Hans and Gretchen. High life v. low life. A beer cellar. At Munich, we left our luggage at the station and went in search of breakfast. Of course, at eight o'clock in the morning, none of the big cafes were open. But at length, beside some gardens, we found an old-fashioned looking restaurant, from which came a pleasant odour of coffee and hot onions, and walking through and seating ourselves at one of the little tables placed out under the trees, we took the bill of fare in our hands and summoned the waiter to our side. I ordered the breakfast. I thought it would be a good opportunity for me to try my German. I ordered coffee and rolls as a groundwork. I got over that part of my task very easily. With the practice I had had during the last two days, I could have ordered coffee and rolls for forty. Then I foraged around for luxuries and ordered a green salad. I had some difficulty at first in convincing the man that it was not a boiled cabbage that I wanted, but succeeded eventually in getting that silly notion out of his head. I still had the little German left, even after that, so I ordered an omelette also. Tell him a savoury one, said B, or he will be bringing us something full of hot jam and chocolate creams. You know their style. Oh, yes, I answered. Of course, yes. Let me see. What is the German for savoury? Savoury, mused B. Oh, ah, hum. Bothered if I know. Confound the thing. I can't think of it. I could not think of it either. As a matter of fact, I never knew it. We tried the man with French. We said, Une omelette au fine herbe. As he did not appear to understand that, we gave it him in bad English. We twisted and turned the unfortunate word savoury into sounds so quaint, so sad, so unearthly, that you would have thought they might have touched the heart of a savage. This stoical Teuton, however, remained unmoved. Then we tried pantomime. Pantomime is the language what marmalade, according to the label on the pot, is the butter, an excellent occasional substitute. But its powers as an interpreter of thought are limited. At least, in real life they are so. As regards a ballet, it is difficult to say what is not explainable by pantomime. I have seen the bad man in a ballet conveyed to the premier danseurs by a subtle movement of the left leg, together with some slight assistance from the drum, the heart-rending intelligence that the lady she had been brought up to believe was her mother was in reality only her aunt by marriage. But then it must be borne in mind that the premier danseuse is a lady whose quickness of perception is altogether unique. The premier danseuse knows precisely what a gentleman means when he twirls round forty-seven times on one leg and then stands on his head. The average foreigner would, in all probability, completely misunderstand the man. A friend of mine once, during a tour in the Pyrenees, tried to express gratitude by means of pantomime. 
he arrived late one evening at the little mountain inn where the people made him very welcome and set before him their best and he being hungry appreciated their kindness and ate a most excellent supper indeed so excellent a meal did he make and so kind and attentive were his hosts to him that after supper he felt he wanted to thank them and to convey to them some idea of how pleased and satisfied he was he could not explain himself in language he only knew enough spanish to just ask for what he wanted and even to do that he had to be careful not to want much he had not got as far as sentiment and emotion at that time accordingly he started to express himself in action he stood up and pointed to the empty table where the supper had been then opened his mouth and pointed down his throat then he patted that region of his anatomy where so scientific people tell us supper goes to and smiled he has a rather curious smile has my friend he himself is under the impression that there is something very winning in it though also as he admits a touch of sadness they use it in his family for keeping the children in order the people of the inn seemed rather astonished at his behaviour they regarded him with troubled looks and then gathered together among themselves and consulted in whispers i evidently have not made myself sufficiently clear to these simple peasants said my friend to himself i must put more vigour into this show accordingly he rubbed and patted that part of himself to which i have previously alluded and which being a modest and properly brought up young man nothing on earth shall induce me to mention more explicitly with greater energy than ever and added another inch or two of smile and he also made various graceful movements indicative as he thought of friendly feeling and contentment at length a ray of intelligence burst upon the faces of his hosts and they rushed to a cupboard and brought out a small black bottle ah that's done it thought my friend now they have grasped my meaning and they are pleased that i am pleased and are going to insist on my drinking a final friendly bumper of wine with them the good old souls they brought the bottle over and poured out a wine-glassful and handed it to him making signs that he should drink it off quickly ah said my friend to himself as he took the glass and raised it to the light and winked at it wickedly this is some rare old spirit peculiar to the district some old heirloom kept specially for the favoured guest and he held the glass aloft and made a speech in which he wished long life and many grandchildren to the old couple and a handsome husband to the daughter and prosperity to the whole village they could not understand him he knew but he thought there might be that in his tones and gestures from which they would gather the sense of what he was saying and understand how kindly he felt towards them all when he had finished he put his hand upon his heart and smiled some more and then tossed the liquor off at a gulp three seconds later he discovered that it was a stringent and trustworthy emetic that he had swallowed his audience had mistaken his signs of gratitude for efforts on his part to explain to them that he was poisoned or at all events was suffering from acute and agonizing indigestion and had done what they could to comfort him the drug that they had given him was not one of those common cheap medicines that lose their effect before they have been in the system half an hour he felt that it would be useless to begin another supper then even if he could get one and so he went to bed a good deal hungrier and a good deal less refreshed than when he arrived at the inn gratitude is undoubtedly a thing that should not be attempted by the amateur pantomimist savoury is another b and i very nearly did ourselves a serious internal injury trying to express it we slaved like cab horses at it for about five minutes and succeeded in conveying to the mind of the waiter that we wanted to have a game at dominoes 
Then, like a beam of sunlight to a man lost in some dark, winding cave, came to me the reflection that I had in my pocket a German conversation book. How stupid of me not to have thought of it before! Here had we been racking our brains and our bodies, trying to explain our wants to an uneducated German, while all the time there lay to our hands a book specially written and prepared to assist people out of the very difficulty into which we had fallen, a book carefully compiled with the express object of enabling English travellers, who, like ourselves, only spoke German in a dilettante fashion, to make their modest requirements known throughout the fatherland, and to get out of the country alive and uninjured. I hastily snatched the book from my pocket, and commenced to search for dialogues dealing with the great food question. There were none. There were lengthy and passionate conversations with the laundress about articles that I blushed to remember. Some twenty pages of the volume were devoted to silly dialogues between an extraordinarily patient shoemaker and one of the most irritating and constitutionally dissatisfied customers that an unfortunate shopkeeper could possibly be cursed with, a customer who, after twaddling for about forty minutes and trying on, apparently, every pair of boots in the place, calmly walks out with, "'Ah, oh, well, I shall not purchase anything today. Good morning.' The shopkeeper's reply, by the by, is not given. It probably took the form of a boot-jack, accompanied by phrases deemed useless for the purposes of the Christian tourist. There was really something remarkable about the exhaustiveness of this conversation at the shoemaker's. I should think the book must have been written by someone who suffered from corns. I could have gone to a German shoemaker with this book and have talked the man's head off. Then there were two pages of watery chatter on meeting a friend in the street. Good morning, sir, or madam. I wish you a merry Christmas. How is your mother? As if a man who hardly knew enough German to keep body and soul together would want to go about asking after the health of a foreign person's mother. There were also conversations in the railway carriage, conversations between travelling lunatics, apparently, and dialogues during the passage. How do you feel now? Pretty well as yet, but I cannot say how long it will last. Oh, what waves! I now feel very unwell, and shall go below. Ask for a basin for me. Imagine a person who felt like that, wanting to know the German for it. At the end of the book were German proverbs and idiomatic phrases, by which latter would appear to be meant in all languages, phrases for the use of idiots. A sparrow in the hand is better than a pigeon on the roof. Time brings roses. The eagle does not catch flies. One should not buy a cat in a sack, as if there were a large class of consumers who habitually did purchase their cats in that way, thus enabling unscrupulous dealers to palm off upon them an inferior cat, and whom it was accordingly necessary to advise against the custom. I skimmed through all this nonsense, but not a word could I discover anywhere about a savoury omelette. Under the head of eating and drinking, I found a short vocabulary, but it was mainly concerned with raspberries and figs and medlars, whatever they may be, I never heard of them myself, and chestnuts, and such like things that a man hardly ever wants, even when he is in his own country. There was plenty of oil and vinegar, and pepper and salt and mustard in the list, but nothing to put them on. I could have had a hard-boiled egg or a slice of ham, but I did not want a hard-boiled egg or a slice of ham. I wanted a savoury omelette, and that was an article of diet that the authors of this handy little guide, as they termed it in their preface, had evidently never heard of. Since my return home, I have, out of curiosity, obtained three or four English-German dialogues and conversation books intended to assist the English traveller in his efforts to make himself understood by the German people, and I have come to the conclusion that the work I took out with me was the most sensible and practical of the lot. 
Finding it utterly hopeless to explain ourselves to the waiter, we let the thing go, and trusted to Providence, and in about ten minutes the man brought us a steaming omelette with about a pound of strawberry jam inside and powdered sugar all over the outside. We put a deal of pepper and salt on it to try and counteract the flavour of the sweets, but we did not really enjoy it even then. After breakfast we got a timetable and looked out for a train to Oberammergau. I found one which started at 3.10. It seemed a very nice train indeed. It did not stop anywhere. The railway authorities themselves were evidently very proud of it, and had printed particulars of it in extra thick type. We decided to patronise it. To pass away the time, we strolled about the city. Munich is a fine, handsome, open town, full of noble streets and splendid buildings, but in spite of this, and of its 170,000 inhabitants, an atmosphere of quiet and provincialism hovers over it. There is but little traffic on ordinary occasions along its broad ways, and customers in its well-stocked shops are few and far between. This day being Sunday, it was busier than usual, and its promenades were thronged with citizens and country folk in holiday attire, among whom the southern peasants, wearing their quaint centuries-old costume, stood out in picturesque relief. Fashion, in its worldwide crusade against variety and its bitter contest with form and colour, has recoiled, defeated for the present from the mountain fastnesses of Bavaria. Still, as Sunday or gala day comes round, the broad-shouldered, sunburnt shepherd of the Oberland dons his gay, green-embroidered jacket over his snowy shirt, fastens his short knee-breeches with a girdle round his waist, claps his high, feather-crowned hat upon his waving curls, and with bare legs shod in mighty boots, strides over the hillsides to his Gretchen's door. She is waiting for him, you may be sure, ready-dressed, and a very sweet old-world picture she makes, standing beneath the great overhanging gables of the wooden chalet. She, too, favours the national green, but as relief there is no lack of bonny red ribbons to flutter in the wind, and underneath the ornamented skirt peeps out a bright-hued petticoat. Around her ample breast she wears a dark, tight-fitting bodice, laced down the front. I think this garment is called a stomacher, but I am not sure, as I have never liked to ask. Her square shoulders are covered with the whitest of white linen. Her sleeves are also white, and being very full, and of some soft lawn-like material, suggest the idea of folded wings. Upon her flaxen hair is perched a saucy round green hat. The buckles of her dainty shoes, the big eyes in her pretty face, are all four very bright. One feels one would like much to change places for the day with Hans. Arm in arm, looking like some china but exceedingly substantial china, shepherd and shepherdess, they descend upon the town. One rubs one's eyes and stares after them as they pass. They seem to have stepped from the pictured pages of one of those old story-books that we learnt to love, sitting beside the high brass guard that kept ourselves and the nursery fire from doing each other any serious injury, in the days when the world was much bigger than it is now, and much more real and interesting. Munich, and the country round about it, make a great exchange of peoples every Sunday. In the morning, trainload after trainload of villagers and mountaineers pour into the town, and trainload after trainload of good and other citizens steam out to spend the day in wood and valley and upon lake and mountainside. We went into one or two of the beer halls, not into the swell cafes crowded with tourists and Munich Mascherdom, but into the low-ceilinged, smoke-grimed cellars where the life of the people is to be seen. The ungenteel people in a country are so much more interesting than the gentlefolks. One lady or gentleman is painfully like every other lady or gentleman. 
There is so little individuality, so little character among the upper circles of the world. They talk like each other, they think and act like each other, they dress like each other, and look very much like each other. We gentlefolks only play at living. We have our rules and regulations for the game, which must not be infringed. Our unwritten guidebooks direct us what to do and what to say at each turn of the meaningless sport. To those at the bottom of the social pyramid, however, who stand with their feet upon the earth, nature is not a curious phenomenon to be looked down at and studied, but a living force to be obeyed. They front grim, naked life, face to face, and wrestle with it through the darkness, and, as did the angel that strove with Jacob, it leaves its stamp upon them. There is only one type of a gentleman. There are five hundred types of men and women. That is why I always seek out and frequent the places where the common people congregate, in preference to the haunts of respectability. I have to be continually explaining all this to my friends, to account to them for what they call my love of low life. With a mug of beer before me, and a pipe in my mouth, I could sit for hours contentedly, and watch the life that ebbs and flows into and out of these old ale-kitchens. The brawny peasant lads bring in their lasses to treat them to the beloved nectar of Munich, together with a huge onion. How they enjoy themselves! What splendid jokes they have! How they laugh and roar and sing! At one table sit four old fellows playing cards. How full of character is each gnarled face! One is eager, quick, vehement. How his eyes dance! You can read his every thought upon his face. You know when he is going to dash down the king with a shout of triumph on the queen. His neighbour looks calm, slow and dogged, but wears a confident expression. The game proceeds, and you watch and wait for him to play the winning cards that you feel sure he holds. He must intend to win. Victory is written in his face. No! He loses! A seven was the highest card in his hand. Everyone turns to him, surprised. He laughs. A difficult man to deal with, that in other matters besides cards, a man whose thoughts lie a good deal below his skin. Opposite, a cross-looking old woman clamours for sausages, gets them, and seems crosser than ever. She scowls round on everyone with a malignant expression that is quite terrifying. A small dog comes and sits down in front of her and grins at her. Still, with the same savage expression of hatred towards all living things, she feeds him with sausage at the end of a fork, regarding him all the while with an aspect of such concentrated dislike that one wonders it does not interfere with his digestion. In a corner, a stout old woman talks incessantly to a solemn-looking man, who sits silent and drinks steadily. It is evident that he can stand her conversation just so long as he has a mug of beer in front of him. He has brought her in here to give her a treat. He will let her have her talk out while he drinks. Heavens! How she does talk! She talks without movement, without expression. Her voice never varies. It flows on and on and on, like a great resistless river. Four young artisans come clamping along in their hobnailed boots, and seating themselves at one of the rude wooden tables, call for beer. With their arms round the waist of the utterly indifferent Fraulein, they shout and laugh and sing. Nearly all the young folks here are laughing, looking forward to life. All the old folks are talking, remembering it. What grand pictures some of these old, seared faces round us would make if a man could only paint them, paint all that is in them, all the tragedy and comedy that the great playwright, Life, has written upon the withered skins. Joys and sorrows, sordid hopes and fears, 
childlike strivings to be good, mean selfishness and grand unselfishness, have helped to fashion these old wrinkled faces. The curves of cunning and kindliness lurk round these fading eyes. The lines of greed hover about these bloodless lips that have so often been tight-pressed in patient heroism. End of chapter 8